following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like hitting all green lights good. Finding an onion ring in your french fries good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a trunk club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. If we're going to affect real social change, if you're really going to have an impact at scale, it's going to be through the companies that we work at. Welcome to the Forbes interview. I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do in-depth interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. Hey, everybody. It's Laurel, executive producer for Forbes Podcasts. For today's episode, we hear a chat recorded at the Forbes Under 30 Summit in 2017. It's between Paul Tudor Jones, considered one of the greatest living capitalists, and Randall Lane, chief content officer of Forbes Media. Before we take a listen, just want to give a quick but important thank you to Rocket Mortgage and Zip Recruiter. Right now, you can experience Zip Recruiter for free, saving you a couple hundred bucks when you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. You'll hear more about these companies later in the show. Welcome to the stage, moderator Randall Lane, editor at Forbes Magazine, and Paul Tudor Jones II, founder, co-chairman, chief investment officer, and controlling principal at Tudor Investment Corporation. We have one of the great financial minds of all time, uh, Paul Tudor Jones here. And uh, for those of you who don't know, I mean, Paul obviously founded Tudor Investments, founded the Robin Hood Foundation, which has revolutionized how philanthropy works. But uh, right now, I think, well, I'll ask you, I mean, in some ways, this is your biggest mission here where uh, you've talked, Paul's talked about, I mean, this is a great capitalist talking about the need right now, the urgent need to save capitalism from itself. So with that as a preface, Paul, for those of you who don't know your background, maybe you can give us a three-minute, the three-minute Paul story. Um, thank, thanks so much, Randall. First, let me just say, I have four kids between the ages of 20 and 30. It's just so nice to be in a room full of people that already know everything there is to know. Uh, <laughs> in, including what I was wearing this morning didn't match, and I had to go back upstairs and change my clothes. So it's, <laughs> I, 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 I always tell people who, I've got a whole bunch of friends who've got kids that are kind of like ages 5 to 15 or 20, and I said, once you're going to learn that as you become a parent, your primary job is just to be the target for multiple spirit spear chuckers who are just always just, I I think kids grow up by tearing their parents down. I love my children. Uh, Well, four of them, you brought that on yourself. But, but, um, no, I was, I started when I was your age in my 20s. I was a pit trader. I started out trading cotton in 1976. It was an incredible time. Uh, inflation was on the way to 12%. Interest rates, believe it or not, were on the way to 21%. Incredible volatility. And we're all products of our environment. Uh, I grew, uh, being a commodity trader, and during that time, the weather was even crazier than it is now. Things would, 
double and then cut in half and double and cut in half or triple, and they do it in six months. So the idea, uh, given my background as a commodity trader, uh, and, and again, I made, being a futures trader, I made, I went with the evolution and the development of financial futures in 1982, the introduction of the S&P 500. I migrated from commodities into financial instruments, and we're all products of our environment. So having seen stuff, literally, I saw silver go from 50 bucks in 1980 during the great bunker hunt squeeze to five bucks in five weeks. Uh, and the idea of buy and hold, it was just insane for that period of time. So I, I became uh, a speculator and a trader as opposed to an investor because I was born of a time when investment had a negative return associated with it. Uh, so that's how I kind of got to where I am today, which is a macro, uh, a macro fund trader. Somewhere in my late 20s, early, early 30s, because I'd done pretty well financially by the time I was 30, somewhere I realized there was something a lot more to life than just making money. It was funny, I, I worked for two brokerage firms between ages 21 and 24, and then I went and just became an individual speculator in the pits myself. And I did really, really well, but I found it was really lonely. It was actually boring, uh, and I missed that kind of social interaction, which is why I ended up starting a money management company and going back to all my old clients and having them invest in my fund because I missed that interaction. Uh, I think you're, well, all, you'll always find, you'll, you, you know, you kind of, I look at and break my life into my family life, my social life, my professional life, uh, we all pray that we can have a great and happy family life. Uh, we all pray that we can have a great professional life. Um, you'll find somewhere that you're going to have that need for significance, that need that maybe I'm doing something more than just going and working. I'm doing something more than just uh, having a great family, though that's extraordinarily critical um, for many people. And so that's, that's kind of how I got involved uh, with Robin, or, or that's how the genesis of Robin Hood came. I knew that I wanted to do something that was going to be meaningful in my life in some way, shape, or form where I could be impactful on a micro basis, and it just kind of grew into something larger than that. And that, that was, I started out um, mentoring sixth graders in Bedford-Stuyvesant, New York, uh, and that was five years of incredible dedicated energy and love, and then that migrating to Robin Hood and migrating to a variety of other things. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Support for the Forbes interview podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask, why? Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether 
Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your tenth, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process. It gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply. Understand fully. Mortgage confidently. To get started, go to RocketMortgage.com/Forbes. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLS. ConsumerAccess.org. Number 3030. The, well, now the new mission、uh, you've done, you know, as well by capitalism as almost anybody in the world. But you are kind of a canary in the coal mine, where you're talking about the problems we have with capitalism that right now. Can you maybe share what you see as the problems we have right now with a system that everyone in this room very much cherishes? Well, the one interesting thing about having been on Wall Street since '76 is you've got to see how it's evolved, and you've got to see how it's evolved also、uh, in a social sense and. Certainly, I was born of that time when Milton Friedman, who was anybody that was an entrepreneur, Milton Friedman was God.、Uh, and and then, if you haven't seen it, you should Google up and see his very famous interview with、um, the English guy、uh, Fa- Frost. 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 Oh my Lord, it's so good. He just he. It's just a throwdown. It's like a, a slam from the top top ropes. Fantastic. <laughs> So he was God. He was literally God for any young、uh, entrepreneur capitalist, and he said famously that the purpose of a corporation is to make a profit. That's the entire sole purpose of a corporation was to make a profit. And I think if you kind of think where capitalism has gone today, everyone has taken that mantra, and then I'd say particularly around. The turn of the century, when we began to come into the aughts, you saw that taken to even extremes. You, you began to see it in the 80s, when we had cost cutting and we had、uh, M&A and combinations of company, where we were ruthlessly going for efficiencies. And、uh, whether it was green mail or leverage buyouts or whatever, and it was applauded.、Uh, And it, w- and it was there was I think when it first really started in the 80s there was kind of a question mark around it but people became fabulously wealthy doing it、uh, and certainly see we began to hire we began to hire CEOs that were I think proponents of that and very good at it、uh, where you started to see it seeping in my business was in the aughts with the rise of activism、uh, in hedge funds. And you saw very many hedge fund activists who became really good at going in and trying to find out a way to financially engineer, as well as operationally engineer,、uh, more profitable outcomes in companies. And you could kind of see that metric play out real time because labor share of corporate revenue in the early 70s was probably around. Oh, I'd say 66, 67%. Today, that number is 56%, and we've seen capital take a greater share of revenue than was the case 40 years ago. And you've also seen over that time profit margins. I guess in the mid 70s they were probably six to seven percent. They got as high as 13% two years ago. They're probably around 12 right now. So shareholders. Have benefited at the expense of labor, 
And that has been, uh, had a huge social impact on this country. And the way that we started Just Capital really was, uh, I've been involved in a whole lot of not-for-profits, um, both fighting poverty as well as uh, on the conservation environmental side. And the holy grail when you sit on a not-for-profit, when you're in the board of a not-for-profit, the holy grail is, wow, can I, get the, can I get the state to match our funding? Can I get, in New York City, we've got 20, at Robinhood, we've got 23 partnerships uh, with the city. So, you know, being with government is so important because that's, that's the, the 800-pound gorilla. And what became clear to me uh, four or five years ago was that Actually, uh, when you think about it, when you're trying to play for impact and you're trying to go for scale, uh, the government's not the 800-pound gorilla. Uh, the 800-pound gorilla is actually the private sector. So think about this. Uh, private philanthropy is about $350 billion a year. Uh, state, local, federal government's around $4 trillion a year. So it's Ten, it's, excuse me, it's, 12, it's uh, 12 times that of, uh, corporate philanth- of private philanthropy. The private sector is $18 trillion a year. So the private sector is four and a half times the size, three and a half times the size uh, of the government, and it's 50 times the size of private philanthropy. If we're going to affect real social change, if you're really going to have an impact at scale, it's going to be through the companies that we work at, whether it's a small business or whether it's a, a major corporation. So let's talk about how Just Capital comes into effect. Due diligence uh, and disclosure, I'm on the board of Just Capital and Forbes is a partner with Just Capital and we're going to be releasing a Just 100 list of the most just companies. So tell us how Just Capital works and tell us about this Just list. Okay, so j- just if I can just go back to Milton Friedman for a second. So now Milton Friedman said that the purpose of a company is uh, to make a profit. And that became an absolute, this wonderful thing that became the operating axiom for anybody, whether it's a shareholder or whether in management, Everything was okay because we could operate under that veil. And that's, the, modern, that's the, the father of modern capitalism. When he said that, tax rates, individual tax rates in the United States had just come down from 90% to 70%. 70% was the top rate when he said that. Wealth disparity uh, in the United States was one-fifth, one-fifth of what it is today. 20% of what it is today, the difference between the bottom 10 and the top 10. So it was a different time when he said that. And I would argue today that if he came back and saw where we are as a country, I don't think he'd say that. Uh, he was too smart of a man. I, I, I do not think that he would say that because where we're going right now, if you kind of go back and think of the history of civilization, what are the things that tear apart great civilizations historically. It's either been certainly wars, uh, pestilence, wars generally around religions. One of the other key things that always end up tearing down uh, great civilizations or countries are 
uh, wealth disparity. That probably, if you had to look at one root cause, I don't care whether it was the French Revolution or Cuba when Castro took over, huge wealth disparity is something that promotes and increases unhappiness, social instability, and it's not sustainable over the long run. And, of course, where we are in the United States is we have just, we have the highest wealth disparity by a country mile of any major developed country. Uh, and if you look right now, the period that we're in right now with the divisiveness, uh, certainly unlike anything, time, any, anything in my lifetime, I can kind of go back and point to the fact that we've got this literally chasm between the haves and the have-nots. So it's not sustainable. Uh, and clearly the way that wealth disparity has, has historically been dealt with is either wars, revolution, or taxes. Um, it's one of those three. And my guess is in the future, it'll be one of those three in this country. And taking a quick break, but we'll be right back. Is your company hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just crossing your fingers that the right people will see it. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, listeners to the Forbes interview can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes and save yourself a couple hundred bucks. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like finding an onion ring in your french fries good. Feel that way every single day when you work with a Trunk Club personal stylist. Meet your stylist at TrunkClub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. Why just 100? Why do we start this? The idea there is um, we're going to take the Russell 1000 from... Uh, all 1,000 of the largest companies in the United States. And we're going to rank them on their justness, and we're going to determine justness, not by what I think or Randall thinks, but we're going to ask the public, a, and we have asked the public over three years, 75,000 people of a perfect demographic, re, demographically represented mix in the United States, what do you think constitutes corporate justice? Uh, and so we're, we've taken those metrics, uh, we've refined them and distilled them down into seven major components. Uh, those components are, number one, how you pay and treat workers. Number two, what type of products that you make, are they harmful or beneficial? Uh, what is the quality, what is the cost? Number three, how do you treat your customers? Um, number four is how do you treat the environment? Number five is, are you creating uh, domestic jobs in the United States? Number six is, how do you treat communities? And number seven is, how are you with regard to how you deal with your shareholders? Obviously, profitability, corporate governance, ethics. And we have a variety of categories with, within each well, one of give those. These guys, give these guys a preview. Which of those seven comes out heavier? How, yeah. how, how's it well, waiting? the number one thing that the public says, the number one determinant of justice is, how do you pay and how do you treat your workers? 
Are you paying them a living wage? Are you treating them with respect? Do they have equal opportunity despite their gender or their were, race? Were you surprised by that? No, not at all. That was, and you're seeing that all the time. And the reason why I think this ranking is going to be so important is because it's going to highlight and begin a debate about what is the true purpose of a, of, of a corporation. It used to be, according to Milton Friedman, we care 100% for our shareholders. There are five stakeholders in any type of corporate engagement. And those stakeholders are, first, your shareholders, but then you have employees, you have customers, you have the communities where those companies are based, and then you have uh, the environment. And you can kind of see with this focus on shareholders, these other four, labor share, again, gone from 67 to 54%. Um, customers, I'd say, have done generally well over the past 30 or 40 years. Communities, our charitable corporate giving has gone from 2% of corporate revenue down to 0.7% over the past 40 years. So I'm not sure how well communities have done. And I don't have to, I think if we all had to give the, the planet a grade, we know we'd give it F. Uh, so these four have been basically paying for the aggrandizement of shareholders and management. Um, and the question is, is that sustainable in the long run? Is the current split that we have sustainable in the, in the long run? And what I do know is when we put these rankings out, and we'll also do it by sector, we'll at least begin the debate so that a CEO doesn't have to sit there and focus, oh, my Lord, what are my, what are my earnings going to be this quarter? Manage for the short term. Manage the exclusion of the other stakeholders in the equation. And hopefully bring something uh, back to the equation that we've missed, which is uh, the humanity that really exists in each of us. Even though we work for a company, it doesn't mean that we have to zero out our humanity. So once this list comes out, so what's the idea that uh, obviously those on the top presumably are going to crow about it and lead by example, and, and I guess presumably those on the bottom will want to not be on the bottom anymore? Well, well, hopefully it's going to be a competition for goodness. Um, so just imagine, we'll have a, just a, the, the reason why I think over time it will work, or there's two major reasons. One, we'll have a just seal that the top 100 can use and affix to their products. They'll hopefully do the marketing for us uh, because it will be a badge of honor. Uh, and then secondly, we're going to create, not this year, but next year, we're going to create an ETF, the Just 100. Interestingly, that ETF, those 100 companies since 2000 have outperformed the S&P by about 5% per annum. Uh, in the last three years, it's been more like 2%, but they're outperforming. So I think do you, that... Do you think it's because companies that treat their workers, you know, et cetera, can afford to do that, so they're outperforming because they're successful companies that can afford to, or is it because their just mindset, you know, creates outperformance? I think it's, a, I think what's interesting is the companies of tomorrow are the ones that are the ones that are paying their, their workers better, are the ones uh, that are creating more jobs, are the ones that actually have more of a social conscience or more customer-oriented. It's, it's, 
If I'm being fair, there's a lot of tech companies that are heavily weighted in the, one, in the uh, Just 100, but there are actually a variety of, comp- of, of there's, there's 32 different sectors that you can kind of break the world down to, S&P does. We've got representatives in the 100 from all but one sector. So it's across the board. Uh, and what I'm excited about is I think that ETF will one day be the third or four, fourth largest ETF. It'll probably be just behind SPIES and the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. And I think people will want to invest with companies that they think are representing their social ideals. Uh, and the most important thing is we'll get a dialogue in the boardrooms about what is just behavior in a granular level. So we know, we can guess, I don't know, but I'm going to assume that R.J. Reynolds or Phil, one of the tobacco companies is going to be $9.99 or $1,000. Let, let's just, I don't know it for a fact, but let's make that assumption. So if I'm a board member of that tobacco company, I, I knew I was signing up for making a product that was going to give people a gruesome death. I, I knew that to begin with. So I don't really care the fact that I'm $9.99 out of 1000 or 1000 But if Philip Morris is 740 and I'm 999 in that particular, well, then you know what? I'm going to say, well, what is it that Philip Morris is doing that I'm not doing? So hopefully it's going to engender again a debate, which we don't have. We're just starting to have in the last two or three years, but we don't have. It's going to engender a debate. And more importantly, it's going to engender a competition for goodness. And just remember, the denominator on this is $18 trillion. All we've got to do is move the, move the needle 2% on the consumption of goods. That's $360 billion. 2% on where people work. That's $360 billion. 2% on investable AUM well, that's 2% of 40 trillion. That's 800 billion. So we don't have to do much to have an outsized impact. Uh, and that's why I'm really excited. That's great. How many, uh, we're out of time, but one last question. How many people here uh, have recently started or have started a company or a firm or are planning to shortly? Raise your hand. All right, so you got 200 future just CEOs. What would you advise them as they start their companies? To I, I, well, a just company. So I've got a small company, uh, and it was really interesting. My partner, my co-chair said to me, okay, look, you, you know, you're getting out in this Just 100. Let's see how we do. So we took the metrics. We internalized them. We kind of came up, and you'll be able to do that on our website uh, when we launch. You'll be able to measure your own company, and you'll be able to go through and look at those metrics and, and see how you match up. And what was really interesting for us is, you know, again, the most important thing is, is worker pay. So uh, our worker pay, the lowest, was, was very high. But I said, you know what? We've got these guys in the yard. You're telling me they make 50 grand a year, the guys? Because I know Jose, who's sitting there and runs uh, all our lawn maintenance. And uh, my partner said, no, 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 no. They're, they're contractual workers. They're not full-time workers. They're contractual workers. They, and then we looked, they made... 11 bucks an hour in Greenwich, Connecticut. 11 bucks an hour to a guy that I saw every day for over a decade. I've never felt so bad in my whole life. So we looked through our contractual workers and we upped their pay to get to a living wage in Greenwich, Connecticut. So again, 
I find that I think this debate's so important because so often we're doing things that we don't even know we're doing um, or should be doing things that we don't, that we're not doing uh, simply because of ignorance. So hopefully it'll be a debate, it'll be important, and hopefully we'll change the needle a bit. Well, thanks for taking the lead on that. Thanks for inspiring. I'm sure you gave everyone a lot to think about. Thank you, Thank Paul Tudor Jones. That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a question or comment, please reach us at interview at podcastone.com. Hi, I'm Spencer Raskoff, the CEO of Zillow Group, and I have a new podcast here on Podcast One called Office Hours. Listen as I have one-on-one conversations with other CEOs. We have the kind of conversations that can only happen between peers, tackling tough questions, sharing hard-won insights, and helping to define what leadership means today. Join me twice a month on Office Hours, exclusively on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and the new Podcast One app. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like hitting all green lights good, finding an onion ring in your french fries good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B dot com. At the border. I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.